0: Listening to a download from theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Number 386.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Outdoor Station with me, your host, Bob Cartwright. A couple of announcements first. It is now mid March 2015 as I record this podcast. And of course, at backpackinglight.co.uk, I'm busy preparing for our forthcoming Lightweight Outdoor Show, which takes place on Saturday the 25th of April in Malvern. If you're feeling free that day or maybe even the weekend and you'd like to come to, well, what is a beautiful area on the Malvern Hills, uh, we're only 200 yards away from the award-winning Blackmoor Caravan Park campsite. And they uh, they know that uh, people are coming uh, for the show, so they've got a space allocated there for you. So if you feel like making a weekend of it, you'll be more than welcome there and, of course, with us at the show. Also, as we come to the end of March, we are into the last few days of our listener survey for the Outdoor Station. Your feedback is really appreciated and is really helping us... Uh shape and forge what we plan to do with the outdoor station generally and the information we produce uh, over the next few years. Uh, we've had well over 100 people uh, give us their thoughts and um, that has been gratefully received. So if you're not one of those and you haven't uh, got round to doing it just yet, it will be finishing at the end of March. The link to it is on the front page on theoutdoorstation.co.uk and of course we will be compiling the data and and revealing all the information and so on in a podcast uh, after that date when we sat and gone through all the various comments. But we appreciate everything that everybody's said so far and it's been fascinating. In our last podcast, number 385, we spoke with Ash Dykes. Uh, the guy that walked across Mongolia. We've had a massive response, Uh, so thank you to everyone who's taken time to write emails, uh, add notes to the uh, Outdoor Station website, and comments on Facebook as well. Many people were commenting on the interview and how interesting it was to hear more behind-the-scenes detail. So, as a result, we've had thousands and thousands of downloads. So, thank you for that, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Now, This podcast is the first of a two-part interview with Jasper Wynne, who, like Ash Dykes, is another adventurer and writer. And it relates to his recent 500-mile walk from Munich to Paris, which took place in November and December 2014, wild camping all the way. Now, Jasper, you may remember from podcast number 341 and 342, when we spoke with him about his book Paddle, A Long Way Around Ireland, a very interesting, entertaining and amusing book. The premise behind this particular walk will unfold shortly but I wanted to speak with Jasper at this time of year so listeners in Europe anyway could relate to the cold and dark weather we experienced during November and December of 2014. Sometimes it is hard to visualize the hardships and frustrations of winter when listening while sitting back in a deck chair during the summer. There is a website associated with the story, of course, entitled theslowadventure.com and, of course, links, photos and some samples of Jasper's trip can be found on The Outdoor Station 2 relating to this podcast, 386 and part 2, 387.
0: The reason that I walked from Munich to Paris uh, started because of a book and a book written by a film director, a slightly maverick, a slightly eccentric film director, Werner Herzog. Not particularly well known even in Germany, it has to say uh, to be said. But what he is well known for um, is firstly working with Klaus Kinski, who is genuinely certifiedly off the wall. Um, and uh, for making some very strange films in incredibly difficult uh, circumstances. So I think what sums up um, Werner Herzog's career is the making of his film Fitzcarraldo, starring Klaus Kinski, filmed in Peru. And the story, and it's a fictitious story, hinged on a, uh, a self-made rubber baron trying to get enough money to start um, and build an opera house, an opera house up in the, uh, in the Amazonian forest in the jungle. And the uh, the crutch of this film is that uh, this fictitious rubber baron is going to get a paddle steamer up over a mountain from one bend in the river to uh, across the rapids, as it were, um, by bypassing the rapids by pulling this whole boat up over a mountain. Now, most filmmakers, even back in the uh, in the day before there was computer graphics and so on and so forth, would have just made a fantastically uh, Um, A fantastically detailed scale model. Herzog built a paddle steamer. In fact, he built, uh, I think, three of them all together. Um, A full-size paddle steamer and got 2,000 local people, um, 2,000 indigenous Indians, to pull it over a mountain and filmed the whole thing as a documentary, effectively, with Klaus Kinski running around in period 19th century costume. That is how Herzog made films. And I think it's how he approaches life in general. And his walk in 1974 from Munich to Paris was, um, it sprang from his own attitude to life. He had heard that uh, a German film critic, Lottie Eisner, was ill, very ill, possibly dying. Um, In fact, he thought dying. And he was incredibly grateful to her. She'd started his career by um, putting one of his films, unbeknownst to him, into Cannes. she championed his, um, at times, very strange films. She had really made his career and supported him. And he decided that he had to go to her bedside. But being Werner Herzog, his initial thought to fly there uh, was superseded by the idea that the only valid thing he could do was to walk there. So on the 23rd of November 1974, uh, this film director gets up, leaves his wife and small child, puts a few items of clothing into a kit bag, pulls on a, a jacket. Um, he has a new pair of boots, and he walks off in a straight line following a compass, um, a compass uh, and direction from Munich to Paris, which very handily is exactly 500 miles um, or 800 kilometers. And he wrote a journal of his trip. It, um, it took him roughly 24, 25 days, a bit of doubt about that, um, but that's good going, and that, that means he was doing, on average, 20-plus miles every day, nonstop, in appalling weather, up over the, um, up over the, um, the Schwabian Alps, um, very high, as I discovered to my surprise, up over the Black Forest Mountains, equally, uh, if not higher, to my surprise, and then over the Vosges Mountains on the far side of the Rhine, horrifyingly high, as I discovered, having thought um, myself that you know, Europe and that area were sort of fairly flat. Hertzog made this trip, um, as I say, taking almost no equipment. His idea for accommodation was to break into summer houses or sleep in barns, or um, or just find shelter wherever he could. It wasn't a pleasure walk, and his journal shows that it wasn't a pleasure walk. He was on a pilgrimage, on a mission. But now people are um, divided about the book that came out of the journal. Um, it's uh, the book is called. Um, von in Ice, of Walking in Ice. There's an English version. It's just been reprinted in vintage classics. And uh, some people, it has to be said, people who possibly aren't really walkers or outdoors people love it because it is um, a, a stream of consciousness. It's filmic. He just writes down whatever he sees at any given moment. There's no context. He doesn't talk about the wider world. He, like a camera, just writes down what he sees at any given moment. And as he walks and as he gets tireder, and as the weather gets worse, he becomes uh, more and more, um, I'm searching for the right word, but um, I think deranged is, is possibly a fair word. He starts having visions, hallucinations. He's so cold at times. He's so miserable. He's tired. He doesn't find food. He makes the whole thing into an epic I came across the book, um, oh, well, probably 15 years ago now, uh, when I was doing research into long walks for an article, and a few people recommended it to me. Now, I liked the book. I I, 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 was, I was struck by the language. I was, I was struck by the authenticity of it. Um, he, he's a difficult man, and it comes across, but nonetheless, I was excited at finding somebody who'd managed to have a real physical and a mental adventure right in the heart of Europe. So every year, for probably the last decade, every, every January, when I get a new diary, um, 23rd of November, I put a, a little um, reminder to myself to go off and do Herzog's walk. And I can tell you that for 10 years, I've found very good reason to come November not to walk 500 miles across the middle of Europe. Uh, it was just last November that, uh, possibly in a very Herzogian way, um, it wasn't particularly well planned. I found myself in Munich at midnight, setting off to walk in his footsteps. Um, and actually, I had thought that year, because it was the 40th anniversary of, the, uh, of his walk, 1974, uh, I had thought that maybe that would be a good year to do the, the, the walk in. And much earlier in the summer, I had got all my kit out. Now, you can imagine, i like, you know, I'd hammock proper bivvy bag, good sleeping bag would have been – that was very useful. All my waterproof kit, you know, good lightweight um, uh, uh, rainproof gear, good boots, the whole lot. And I bundled it all up, packed it all up, nice light rucksack. Would have been carrying, you know, very handy sort of 12 kilos, you know, really good for walking. Put it all um, to one side in Ireland, um, ready to pick up later in the year and go off walking. I never got back to Ireland in time. And in fact, I didn't intend to do the trip. I just put it out of my mind. I had other things going on. And then I was in... Uh, but for some reason, I still find it very hard to know why. I just felt an inner compulsion to do the walk. It was very inconvenient. I didn't have any of my kit because I wasn't in Ireland. And I actually set off from Portugal to Cologne on a flight. I was working with a band playing in, uh, in Portugal. And it just suddenly seemed, now is the time to go. It was November, exactly 40 years after Herzog had walked for 500 miles from Munich to Paris, and uh, there was some inner compulsion, if you like, the idea of a pilgrimage, something not really about following Herzog, not emulating him. He was just the, uh, the inspiration for doing a long winter walk. The Catalyst, he was exactly yeah,
1: there. Yeah. Well, certainly, as you know, I've read the book in preparation with this, for this interview, and uh, I certainly struggled with it. And I can imagine, now you've described it as really, it is translating a, a, a film camera's moment into words. If you just took it in literally half page at a time and absorbed it and studied it like you would do as a, an English student, it could actually sort of start to make some sense. But as, a, as a, I was anticipating some kind of diary, I guess, um, and it just hit me it's so hard going uh, this, this randomness, and as you say, he would just flip off into describing one scene, which presumably where he was at the time, and then go off into a dream or go into a recollection without giving you a transition point. So the story about a dog would suddenly turn into a story about a group of people, and it was just I couldn't quite follow the flow at all. Um, but I've seen thicker uh, instruction manuals for a washing up machine uh, it's not the thickest book in the world uh, no, it's
0: definitely a way to write a book I mean, as far <laughs> as I can see he, he claims, I've met Herzog very briefly have you? And, uh, I've sure. seen him talk about uh, things he, he reckons it's the most important bit of work he's ever done, that small book oh. he feels that um, though he's made more than 60 films that it actually as a writer that uh, uh, he's only got Uh, essentially that one book and an account of film of Fitzcarraldo and and a very long extended interview um, as his literary output. And that book does seem to work on people. It's an appalling um, guide to walking across Europe. Um, It's no help at all. As somebody once said when they were reviewing Lady Chatelier's Lover in the field, they said, you won't learn much about pheasant rearing from this book. And um, a bit like Herzog's walk across uh, Europe. You know, if you're looking for actual tips on, you know, a comfortable um, extended walk, uh, you're not going to get much help from him.
1: No, no, Uh, absolutely not.
0: But he's a tough man. I mean, that's, I think, what struck me. And what I was interested in in doing was um, at least setting off on the same route as him. I mean, I knew immediately I was going to take longer than he was. Um, yeah, I just couldn't imagine doing more than 20. I think he did about, I think if you average out, he did 23 miles a day, every day for 24 days. And, um, in, in cold weather, when you're not sleeping well, that's pushing it a bit without mm-hmm. a break. Um, so I thought well, I'm going to definitely take, you know, a week or so longer. And, um, and I did, I did carry better kits, not much better because I said all the good stuff that I had, all my, uh, My really good, lightweight camping gear was sitting in a bundle back in Ireland. And so I decided that what was really important was a hammock, um, so that I did take. I had to borrow a sleeping bag, so I had a two-season sleeping bag for essentially a lot of high walking, so down to freezing most nights, below quite a few nights. Not nearly as bad weather as um, in 1974. I was blessed, it has to be said, with the weather on the whole not day after day of wet um, of rain and wind like Herzog got, and no, um, no appreciable snow. Um, yeah. That was a huge benefit, of course, from the point of view of walking. But unlike Herzog, who, when he got really tired and cold and wet, began staying in pensions and um, cheap hotels, I ended up camping out, sleeping out every night but one. So that was 31 nights out. Uh, and bivvying the whole way. No tent. Uh, I took a poncho um, tarp, uh, a cedar Summit poncho tarp, which is uh, one of the most important bits of kit. It meant I could make camp anywhere, any night. And you've read the book, and you've probably picked up on that feeling, uh, paranoia that Herzog seemed to have. He seemed to be worried about the police the whole time, about being caught doing something.
1: This podcast and over 380 more are available on the Outdoors Station website and are entirely free to download and absorb whenever you need an injection of self-powered outdoor entertainment. We've undertaken numerous trips ourselves and talked with lots of people along the way. We've spoken to many unsung heroes of adventure, normal people, if you will, who have done extraordinary and interesting things. Generally, people we talk to are willing to share their love and appreciation of whatever experience they've undertaken. Such is the collective love for the outdoors world. You may be a new listener or someone who has enjoyed every single one of our podcasts. Either way, you are one of the 7.5 million people who have downloaded our rich and varied content ever since we started in 2005. And we would like to hear your thoughts about what we do at the Outdoor Station. We're currently running a listener survey from January to the end of March 2015. Just a few questions and comments asking for your thoughts about what we've done in the past and where we might go in the future. None of your data is recorded, but your thoughts are. So if you have 10 minutes to spare, please go to the OutdoorStation.co.uk website and click the Take Our Survey box on the front page. We would like to keep improving and developing on the foundations of the last 10 years. And with your help, we can be confident that whatever direction we choose, we will still entertain and inform you and those like you all around the world. Well, I certainly found found on reading it that um, for some reason I hadn't really picked it up when I actually started reading it, that it was actually 1974. It felt to me like it was just after the Second World War, the way he was describing this very dark, depressing, uh, overbearing, suspicious um, countryside that he was going through.
0: It is a very strange thing. And that, again, was one of the reasons for wanting to do the walk was to, to see how much Germany and France still felt like that. Yeah, I wondered if it was a, um, if it was because he was, you know, walking pretty filthy after a few days, cold, wet, miserable. You know, if if people were reacting entirely to that. Um, I I was in Germany in the late seventies, and I still remember there was quite a sense of 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 youth against the establishment then. There were lots of protests about, I don't know, things about barn in Frankfurt. I think that was going on then. Um, a big protest. It was a real time of sort of, you know, um, no to nuclear anarchy as a, as a political way forward. Um, so in some ways, I mean, you were pointing out some of the things were happening in Britain in 1974. And, um, you know, I think the three-day week, um, was one I'd completely forgotten. You know, I was a sort of young teenager in 1974, so it didn't really impinge on me too much. But as you as you mentioned these things, I thought, actually, I do remember it as being quite a bleak decade, um, the 70s. And I think it might have been even more so in Germany. Um, and and then again in France. But I have to say that that I set off at midnight um, uh, in early November. I, you know, I wasn't slavishly following... Um, Herzog's every move and every uh, every date, I was ready to go in early November, so on the, uh, the night of the 5th of November, midnight, I set off from, um, from Munich into a sleet storm. I, the worst weather almost on the whole trip was when I was beginning. It made the whole thing seem a bit um, ludicrous.
1: Can I just interrupt you there? The the your, you've sort of described the sort of kit that you had. In, in fact, it's almost very Herzog sort of kit, wasn't it? It was sort of what you could ha- you had available to you at the time, and you stuffed in a bag. But um, before you actually go into the into the route as uh, into the description of the walk in more detail, um, the route is. I got the feeling that he was walking uh, predominantly along country roads and then a- across a lot of fields. Uh, w- 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 would I be right in saying that, and is that how you propose to do this
0: as well? Pretty much. Um, yes. I mean, Herzog, when he set off from Munich himself, um, almost the opening line of the book is, you know, he takes out his compass that he'd used for filming in the Sahara, and he says, I have set a course. Now I know where Paris is. I have it. And he sets off. But he's not hes not a stupid man. I mean, the idea of walking an exact short, um, I'm sorry, the idea of walking an exact straight line um, between two capitals 500 miles apart obviously isn't going to work out. What he did was he he took a westerly average the whole way, but he tried as much as possible to follow um, straight roads. In his case, he was trying to get to Paris as quickly as possible. and He did an awful lot of pretty um, depressing slogging along roads, which even in the 1970s were, were busy and um, unrewarding and probably dangerous and i very i mean herzog and i parted um, parted routes quite quickly within about three days i suddenly began to see a better route from my point of view a lot of the routes that he traveled had in the intervening 40 years become um, either autobahns or you know, at least um you know fast carriageways in Germany, that's not such a big deal because there's nearly always um, a parallel cycle path, which is great walking. You know, um, quite dull usually, but very straight. If you're trying to cover miles, it's a good surface. But Herzog also got this feeling for going west, and that was something I was hoping to find as well. That uh, that one would just you know work out different routes. In Germany, there was a, a lot of forest. Um, but with marked paths through. And in France, there was a lot of forest with no paths marked through at all, and in fact, quite often no paths. So, uh, like Herzog, once I was actually on the road, I was, I was really surprised and excited to find how after, probably after the first week, um, west was just ingrained in my mind. In fact, it's west and then with a touch of north in it. Um, but basically, Munich and Paris, to my surprise, are uh, uh, virtually on the same uh, same line of um, latitude. So had you
1: prepared for this by uh, researching maps or old maps or rural maps at all, or was it literally literally just like your rucksack, a seat of the pants?
0: No, I, the one thing I did have was um, when, I, when I knew I was going, the only really serious planning I did um, was I did go to Stanford's and get um, maps of the first hundred miles or so. Um, and I kind of wish I'd bought maps for the whole route because finding good maps from then on was actually quite difficult. And I and Herzog at one point was very keen to walk without maps, and he very quickly discovered the folly of that. Um, yeah, he got incredibly lost. Well, the great luxury, I think, of all my equipment was good maps, and that was entirely because... Not only could I find out where the uh, the tracks were that could take me forward and I could work out which alternative routes I, uh, routes I could take to avoid traffic, but I could also, um, by reading the maps, try and second-guess where I might find a shop, uh, where I might be able to find shelter, a cafe or something for the days, because I was living outdoors. And so the maps allowed me to um, to deduce, you know, into the night even, where I might find something. Because what I discovered very early on, and Herzog talks about the same thing, is that in the rural parts of Germany and very much in the rural east of France, there were not that many shops. There were very few cafes and relatively few um very few people, even. Um, the, the east of France has been incredibly depopulated, and the people who remain behind are, on the whole, really poor. So I was finding um, villages which had nothing at all. They didn't have a cafe, a, a, a bar. They might have a bakery open for a couple of hours in the morning, um, but more usually there's just a van that came around and sold bread. It was quite bleak. Um, and so maps were some chance to, to, to try and work out if a, a town might be on a crossroads, which might mean there's a cafe there. And I suppose what it was, there was a lot of recreational walking in both Germany, particularly in Germany, but also in France. Um, you know, the fantastic uh, uh, you know, Grand um, Randonnée, the GR system all across France and into Germany. People walk for recreational reasons, whereas for practical purposes, people now drive everywhere, and it means that things like uh, cafes just can't get enough business. If I talked to anybody under the age of thirty uh, and lamented the lack of a place to meet in even quite large villages, it just went on and on. But you know, we drive, we drive just you know twelve miles away, and uh, there's a lovely cafe there, and there's a nightclub, and there's everything we need. Or we drive, you know, fifteen miles in the other direction. And there's a, you know, a whole big industrial area full of outlets, um, you know, big supermarkets, Mammoth and Lidl and Aldi and uh, all these incredible places. But of course, if you're walking, a 12-mile detour to find food is it's either an impossibility because it's the end of the day or it's a real slog. So how, how did you manage then? What, what, did, what did you do for
1: basic provisions on a, on a daily basis?
0: I carried quite a lot. So I I suppose weight-wise, my actual kit was probably about um, 12 kilos. What's that, 20, 25 pounds in weight? Everything. But on top of that, I had to carry quite often enough water because it was difficult to find even houses that had people um, who could provide water who I could knock up and ask for water. And then a basic, you know, a kilo or so of muesli, some dates, um, tins of fish, anything I could find at a supermarket. So quite often I'd bump my, uh, my whole weight up by maybe another 15 pounds of, between liquids and foods. And that was entirely because I could easily go two days and there would be almost nowhere to buy anything. At best, uh, um, uh, a boulangerie in uh, um, France or um, a bakehouse, an equivalent. Much better in Germany because a bakehouse quite often sold other foods and also had little kind of tables for coffee. And a lot of the time, I wasn't even so much looking for food. Um, I was looking for shelter. I was out every day in all weathers. I was sleeping out, um, and the idea of having somewhere that I could just spend a couple of hours writing up my journal, um, thawing out, drying off bits of clothing. Um, I mean, we talked about Herzog and uh, you know, his feeling of paranoia, and uh, I, I very quickly became to an extent a hobo figure you know able to find the cheapest cafe in the most unlikely place uh really quick to find a a sheltered place a heat source quite happy to squat out of the rain in a and, and cook up brew up in a bus shelter or in a shed that somebody had left open one starts to think like a like a like a like an animal Looking just for heat and food.
1: Just describe the the weather, if you would. 't I mean, obviously, this was uh, November through to Christmas time uh, in Europe. Was was it like? Was it deep snow, or was it just a smattering of snow? That was just always cold and always wet. Or was it you know that luscious uh, vision of European snow that we may have in our minds? And and secondly. When you're, you're you're hunkering down like this, um, you know, are you really trying to get out of the weather completely? That's really miserable, or was it just just unpleasant, as it were?
0: Well, I was very, very lucky. Um, I didn't hit any deep snow at all. I, mean, I, I didn't actually hit any snow that lay for more than a, than a couple of hours. Completely exceptional weather. I, I mean, as I went up over the mountains, over the, um, the Schwabian Alps, over the Black Forest mountains, over the Vosges, everybody as they would at this time at that time of year so november into early december uh, they had the snow ploughs all waiting they had the gritting lorries all waiting they'd had the snow fences up over on the on the high passes to stop drifting snow covering the roads but in fact apart from sleet and uh, one day when there was quite a lot of snow that fell high up in the uh, in um, where was i i was up in the in the schwabian alps at that point I was just blessed by really good weather. Except, as you say, sometimes snow can be a bit nicer, a lot nicer even, than persistent rain. And I did get several days of just persistent rain. And then it's, well, you know how unpleasant that is. I you've done enough of this kind of thing. And then you really are you know, trying to keep everything dry, making those decisions about you know, whether it's better to keep on walking in wet clothes and keep one layer when you get into into your sleeping bag at night, and my big problem was my sleeping bag was only a two season sleeping bag um, so it it wasn't warm enough unless I was wearing pretty much all my clothing inside uh, so i didn 't actually have a a safety net of warm clothing mm. uh, when it got really cold uh, and so that's you know, why the, you know, the poncho was absolutely uh Key to being comfortable, and uh, this idea, you know, I think anybody done a lot of long distance walking will know. You know, you just you begin to see shelter in the most unlikely places, and you take it. You know, if I found somewhere, I would just stop for an hour just to warm up, out of the wind, out of the rain, um, and sleeping out equally. You know, I would walk on very late into the night on the, on the hope of finding somewhere that was sheltered and with a roof. Um, even just a lean-to or a a hut up in the mountains.
1: Talking of which, in Herzog's book, he obviously, as we've discussed, he his morals as regards breaking into people's properties do seem, does seem to be rather questionable, um, but that's a, a conversation for another time. I was more, the, the the description that he gives about the land and the environment, um, it implies that, first of all, it's a very, very rural, um, windswept type of uh, land that he was crossing. Um, secondly, that, uh, as you've already pointed out, the communities were very, very few and far between and not many people around um, and possibly I presume and it might be the same now the actual the actual income to the area was purely agricultural based and finally there seemed to be this smattering or a quite a regular smattering of holiday cottages or chalets or or whatever was it still the same when 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 you went through did you find there was the same type of feel to the uh, to the environment to the
0: to the landscape <laughs> I think the feel to the countryside is very much the same. And uh, again, a great surprise to me, because we always think of the Germans as being incredibly efficient and modern, which they, they are uh, in so many ways. But I was astounded to find how many really simple rural farms are the kind that, when I come from Ireland, that we just don't really have in Ireland anymore. Um, and you don't really find in England unless you go up um, into really remote mountainous areas. In Germany, I was surprised that that cheek by jowl you'd find somebody farming with the very latest of of modern agricultural um, equipment. And then right next to them would be an old couple who were still cutting um, grass by hand and wheeling it in to feed their handful of cattle um, to to produce milk, which then went back into the same system. That was an interesting thing because I just hadn't realized there was that much variety. And also how it changed from one region to the next. So the Schwabian Alps are very um that typically and traditionally they're known as incredibly hard working people. Um Schaf Schaf or Hoistenbao, they say, you know. Their their motto is work, work, build a house. And then they always say, and don't get distracted by girls. <laughs> and you go into the Black Forest and it's like entering Italy. Suddenly everybody's much more um Relaxed and easygoing, and voices are raised, and there seems to be a lot more drinking and uh, a lot more sort of um, a lot more joyousness. But the farms are not nearly as um, neat and tidy and well run. They're much more rustic, much more as we think of them from sort of sort of chocolate boxes or wooden um, planked barns and uh, geese and um, cattle and uh, goats just wandering around and. I think it was just actually going from east. The further west I went, the harder the land came to work, and then also how depopulated it had become. People, you had know, the only opportunities, certainly in eastern France, it would seem, um, are to go to big cities. To to, to everything's been centralised more and more and more. School decentralized, It's just it's just cheaper and easier. They think to bust the kids in for. 20 miles to a big school in the nearest big city rather than keep village schools going. And it just sucks the heart out of out of small communities. And you really feel that when you're walking because you know, all these villages were established on the basis of people walking between them, walking to work, walking to the next village to meet people. And that's gone now. It's the car. Mm. It just runs everything. So anybody under 30, really when I talk to them, didn't think there was an anomaly in this. You know, they'd always just driven to get to places. You know, there'd be big, big hypermarket somewhere to go shopping, and much cheaper. So it's a sûr, it's a river. Eh? But I was thrown back into this um, into this foot economy, and the infrastructure just wasn't there. And I found it depressing, not just for me, but for I suppose for the older people too who are living in villages which just don't have a heart anymore.
1: This concludes part one and does make one think that we are indeed well serviced by the historic principle of footpaths, bridleways and land access within the UK, something we should all keep in mind to celebrate and treasure. Of course, pictures, links, etc, etc can all be found on theoutdoorstation.co.uk and theslowadventure.com. Now, in part two, Jasper gets into more detail about wild camping, especially close to Paris, the practicalities and thoughts about Kit and his attachment to it, and what it's like to be the victim of an attempted mugging on the very last day. That and more coming in podcast 387. Until next time, I have to be getting on with uh, booking a marquee and toilets for the Backpacking Light show and chasing HM Customs for some deliveries which haven't arrived. Please don't forget to take our survey if you haven't already. In my next wild camp, I'll be brushing up on my navigation skills and putting a few others through their paces in Wales, so I've got to prepare for that. So it's busy, busy, busy for me. Anyway, until next time, folks, take care out there and bye for now.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk.